All right, I hope you got a page of notes, and I hope you have a Bible. We're going to read some verses tonight as we talk about creation. So far, we've talked on Wednesday nights about the doctrine of revelation. How do we know the truth? Where do we find truth? How does God speak to us? We talked about the character of God, the nature of God, some of his attributes. What is he like? Last week, we talked about the Trinity and why that's important. And then this week, we're going to talk about creation. And I'm going to start by just giving you short versions. There's a lot more you can find on these if you're interested in, in reading some of these. But giving you short versions of several different creation myths from around the world. One of the oldest creation myths, in fact, some scholars would say it's the oldest. We would disagree with that because we would say our story, our creation story, goes back to the beginning. But many would say this is the oldest. It's called the Enuma Elish, and it's from Babylon, Babylonian creation myth. And here's the gist of it, okay? Marduk and Tiamat, who were a god and a goddess, they had a fight, physical fight. Marduk won the fight, and he tore Tiamat's body in half. One half became the earth, the other half became the sky. Then Marduk killed Tiamat's husband, Kingu, and used his blood to create human beings so that they could be slaves for the gods. Babylonian creation story. Here's one from Native American culture, okay? There was a little water beetle. He came from the sky realm to see what was below the water, and he found no place to rest, so he divided the water that he came to, and he brought up some soft mud from the bottom, and that mud expanded in every direction and became the earth. And the first people, the explanation for them is that they were a brother and a sister. The brother hit his sister with a fish and told her to multiply. And so she had one baby every week until the earth became too crowded and they had to change that and now women have one baby a year. Here's one from the Mayans, okay? Uh, Kukulkan, Kukulkan, and Tepiu, they were gods. They wanted to create an earth-bound species that looked like them so that they could protect and preserve their legacy. And so the first people they made, they made them with mud, but that wasn't very good because they crumbled. The next people they made were from wood, but they weren't very good people because they did not have a soul and they weren't loyal to Kukulkan and to Piu. And so finally they figured out they needed to make people from maize or from corn. And that one took, and there you go. That's why you're so corny. The Greeks, Lyndon's not here to appreciate that. The one man who would appreciate that in the room is not here. The Greeks, they have this idea, and I'm really condensing some stuff here. They start with the idea of chaos. That's capital C, chaos. Chaos is described as a yawning nothingness. And I thought about putting a picture of chaos up on the screen, but some of the ones I... Found, I thought that might give you nightmares, so I'm not putting it up there. The yawning nothingness. That led to Gaia, G A I A, 
And that eventually led to Uranus and the Titans and the Cyclops and the other gods and then eventually human beings. And you can fill in all sorts of interesting stuff there. The Egyptians. The world emerged, they say, from an infinite, lifeless sea of chaos. And it arose when the sun came up for the very first time. And they believed that a pyramid was the first thing that came out of the sea. One that you have probably come in contact with more than any of the other ones I just shared with you. We'll just call it naturalism. And naturalism says that matter, molecules, atoms, stuff is eternal. And it has always existed. And it did not come from anywhere. It's just always existed. And on its own, without any outside forces or influence, it just came together in some sort of bang, some sort of explosion that propelled everything to the place where it's at now. And it's still going. The universe is still expanding. And everything you see is all that there is. All that there was or all that there ever will be. And that's not satisfying to some naturalists, some who are more philosophically inclined. They just, they look at dirt and they say, it can't just have always been here. It had to come from somewhere. And so there's a growing fascination among some. I mean, it seems crazy to us, but it's dead serious for these people. There's a growing fascination with finding intelligent life somewhere out in the universe in the hopes that maybe we would find the people that started us or created us or made us or could help us figure out who we are. Because this idea that stuff, matter, is just always existed and that's all there ever was and all you are is a process of chemical reactions over time, it's not intellectually satisfying to anybody. So they say, well, we had to come from somewhere, but we know there's not a God because all there is is stuff, so maybe there's some other stuff out there that can explain us And we need to find it. There's lots of different answers. And I want you to understand that as you think about these different creation myths, I mean, we chuckle at some of them, we laugh at some of them. Some of them you squint your eyes and turn your head like a a puppy dog looking at you like I'm confused. What are you talking about? All of those myths, all of those creation stories, if you buy into that story, it's going to have an impact on the way that you live your life. And it's going to have an impact on the way you think about other people. And it's going to have an impact on the way you make decisions on a daily basis. And you may not sit down at every decision and with every relationship and say, okay, how does my belief about the existence of the universe and creation impact this? You don't have to be intentional about it. It's going to flow out of who you are and what you believe. So we're going to talk about creation, hopefully from a biblical perspective. And uh, we're going to ask the same two questions we're asking every week. What do I need to know and why do I need to know it? So here we go. What do I need to know about the doctrine of creation? Number one, the Bible says God created the world ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase that simply means from nothing. He did not start with anything when he created. Ex nihilo. So look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. He 
Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And you certainly get that idea in Genesis 1 where God simply speaks and things just show up. They appear. Everything he says, it happens. So he created ex nihilo. Matter is not eternal. Okay? Right from the get-go, the most simplest of ideas in the Bible about creation sets our worldview apart from naturalism. Naturalism says matter has always existed. Stuff has always been here. And it just came together in the right mixture, in the right time, in the right way, and boom. And right from the get-go, we're saying our worldview is not compatible with what you're saying. Right at a very basic foundational level. Okay, so under this idea of of created from nothing. You need to understand this. The existence of God is simply assumed in the scriptures. Genesis 1 is intended to introduce us to God, not to answer all of the questions of science that we may want to ask of it. Let me give you one disclaimer. I'm not saying that Genesis 1 has nothing to say about science. I'm not saying there's no conversation that can be had about science in Genesis 1. I'm just saying the purpose of Genesis 1 is not to satisfy our scientific curiosity. It's to introduce us to God. And his existence is just assumed. So you have all kinds of philosophers throughout the years that have come up with all these arguments for How can we know that God exists? How can we prove that God exists? You have Christians that put out movies that are C-rate movies at best, and we feel like we're proving that there's a God out there. We're, We're arguing to the fact that there is a God. And I'm just telling you, the Bible doesn't do that. I'm not telling you it's wrong to try to think and to argue for the existence of God. I'm just telling you the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible just says, listen, in the beginning there was a God. Deal with it. I'm I'm not going to give you some philosophical proof or argument or something that can't be denied. I'm just telling you, in the beginning, there was a God. It's just assumed. And Genesis 1 is intended to introduce us to him. Think about the very first people who would have read Genesis 1. Who are they? When it was actually written down. It was the Hebrew people, right? Coming out of Egypt. The stories had been passed down, but to sit down and to actually read it would have been the Hebrew people coming out of Egypt, coming out of this massive pantheon of all these gods and goddesses. And Moses is saying, I want to introduce you to the one true and living God. And there is no other beside him. And when you read through Genesis 1, I did this one time with a 10th grade Sunday school class. You know, 10th graders kind of hard in the forehead sometimes to get stuff through to them. And so I said, look, I'm going to read Genesis 1. And I picked a kid up and I said, every time I say the word God, you put a tally mark up on the board as I read through it. Just tally them up. Almost every single verse mentions God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The point is not to satisfy our curiosity about how things happened. 
The real point is to say, there is a God and this is him. And you need to know the truth about him. B, God created all things by speaking. Just by speaking. And I gave you that sampling of of creation myths. This sets our worldview apart from all of these other creation stories. Gods and goddesses fighting and pyramids coming out of the ocean and all these different things. The Bible is saying there is a God and in the beginning he opened his mouth and he spoke and that's where things came from. He spoke them into existence. Genesis 1-3, God said let there be light and what? There was light. Look at Psalm 33 verse 6. It says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He made it just by speaking. Created all things by speaking. See, the fact that he created all things means that he owns all things. And ownership implies, without argument, authority. He owns it. It belongs to him. That means he gets to set the rules. He gets to tell you how things are supposed to work. He gets to draw the boundary lines, not only for the oceans, but for his people. It's his. He has authority over it. I'll let you look up Psalm 24 and Psalm 89. Number two, here on the outline. God created the world in an orderly way, and creation is ordered. And again, this is different than all the other creation myths that you'll find all over the world. In all these other myths, there's some element of chaos, some element of upheaval and just sort of craziness. And you heard it as I read it. Out of this chaotic sea of nothingness came a pyramid. Out of this yawning nothingness of chaos came all of these gods and goddesses. And the Bible says it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't chaos, out of control, wild stuff. It was the one true God speaking, and everything happened exactly the way he wanted it to happen. He was in control of all of it. There weren't conflicting parties, butting heads and trying to get their way and and, and get their agenda. It was one God pulling all the strings. That means he created time. That's number A, or I should say letter A. On this outline, he created time. Revelation 1 8, who was and is and is to come. Look at Psalm 92. We'll look at one of these verses. Psalm 92. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He created time. He exists outside of time. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It also means, B, that God created according to kinds, creating a hierarchy with human beings having dominion. So there's structure in his creation. Animals are animals. Plants are plants. People are people. There's categories of things that he made. And human beings have dominion over those things. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, the birds, every living thing that moves on the earth. 
I'm giving this to you, and your job is to rule it and to take care of it. So he gives them dominion over it. Number three, God created a world that was very good. Very good. And that means right underneath it, these ideas go together, he created all things to bring glory to himself. He created all things to bring glory to himself. So look what, look what we read in Isaiah 43. He's talking about uh, bringing the people back at some point to the land. And he's saying that he's going to be with them. He will gather them up. He will call to the north and the south. Bring these people back. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and who I made. Flip to the last book of the Bible. Revelation 4, verse 11. Look at the connection in Revelation 4.11 between worship of God, the glory of God, and who he is as the creator. These elders bow down and they, they cast their crowns down and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. You created them, and because of that, you're worthy to receive glory. And one little idea I want you to catch on to here when we say he created all things to bring glory to himself. I just want you to understand, God created a physical world and said it was very good and said this stuff brings glory to me, physical things. The ancient Greeks had the idea that physical things were bad, were evil. You should try to get away from them and only intellectual things and spiritual things and sort of otherworldly things were good and that's what they were trying to escape from and escape to and that kind of stuff filtered into the church and had a big impact on the church for hundreds and hundreds of years because you had prominent teachers in the early church saying marriage and sex is a bad thing it's physical it's not a good thing and you should only do it only so that People don't die off the earth. And that's it. Just Even then, you probably shouldn't even do it at all. It's just bad. Where did that come from? Well, that came from, not the Bible, but from another worldview creeping in saying, physical things are bad, spiritual things are good. And it took a long time for people to sort of connect the dots and say, wait a minute. The world that God made in the very beginning was very physical. He made Adam right out of the dirt. And said it was very good the way that he made it. And he, he made marriage and a physical relationship in marriage and said that that was very good. So God made all things to bring glory to himself. Number four. We're not going to talk about this. We talked about it last week. So if you weren't here, you can, you can get online and catch up. But the three persons of the Trinity work together in creation. The Father plays a role. The Son plays a role. And the Spirit plays a role. The Father is sort of presented as the 
architect behind everything, as the building superintendent, as the foreman supervising the work. The son, who is the word of God, is the one actively engaging in making things. All things were created through God's word. John 1, we talked about that last week. And you see the spirit right there in Genesis 1, hovering over the face of the waters. There's no chaos here. There's nothing out of control because God is completely sovereign over this whole process. And Father, Son, and Spirit are working together. Okay, now I want to say one little thing before we get to the why question. Theories about the age of the earth. I just want to mention these. We could do a whole Wednesday night series on talking about these and debating these and arguing about these. Um, I'll say right out of the gate that the reason this is not this is not debatable, okay? The reason we have this debate is because Christian thinkers are trying to accommodate evolutionary theory and fit it into the Bible, okay? For some of you hear that and you think, well, of course you ought to do that. Some of you hear that and think that's the most wicked thing ever. But that's what's going on. That's why we have these theories. And uh, I'll also say this. I went to... One of them, you are not going to find a seminary more conservative than the seminary I went to. Okay? Very conservative across the board. And I had professors who fell into almost all of these categories. Not all of them, but almost all of them. And they love Jesus, and they take the Bible seriously, and they think that they can fit these things together. And of course, we're going to disagree on some things, but this is not, uh, this is not a the kind of issue where you say, well, I'm sorry you're wrong on that because you're not going to get to go to heaven because you have the wrong theory of the age of the earth, right? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not do you have the radiometric dating of the earth exactly right and fit that in with the scriptures. It doesn't mean it's not important. It is important, and we should argue about it when we disagree, and we should submit to the, the truth of scripture, but let me just mention a few things here. Okay, one option is six-day creation. Just pretty straightforward, right? In six days, God made everything that exists. This is kind of the stuff you remember learning when you're a kiddo. Day one, day two, day three, and you just take it as that was a real day. The sun came up, sun went down. It's a real 24-hour day, and he made all these different things. And I know that a lot of people laugh at that idea and mock it and think it's silly and call it unscientific and you're a barbarian, especially where we live, where oil is a big deal and we start talking about layers in the earth's crust and geological ages and on and on and on. I understand all that. What I'm telling you is this theory is not as backward as people want you to believe it is. Okay? And there's a couple of things going on here. One, people who would hold to this theory would say, God made a mature creation. So when God is on day three, I think it's day three, when he's making the redwoods, he's making the first redwood ever, okay? And he makes this giant redwood and it's this massive tree. He doesn't start off with a little sapling. He makes a redwood. There it is. Adam opens his eyes and he sees a redwood, a real redwood. And if you were to cut that sucker down in the middle and fall it over, you would see thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of rings. And you may be tempted to say, that tree has been here for thousands of years. And the reality has been there for 20 seconds. And that applies to lots of different things in creation. 
when we talk about stars and the light coming from stars, and scientists say, well, light from the stars couldn't even get here in 6,000 years. How stupid do you have to be? Well, we understand how light from stars works, and we just say, God can make a star. If he can make a star, he can probably make the light coming from the star on the way. So that when Adam opens his eyes, he doesn't see nothing but black up in the sky, but he sees stars. And they were there only 20 seconds ago, six days ago, whatever. But he sees those things. So there's an idea that he made the creation mature. Uh, We see that in Adam and Eve, right? Adam doesn't plop out on the ground as an embryo. He's a man. He looks grown. He walked into the garden and looked at him. You say, well, we've been here, what, 34 years? No, 15 minutes. Just got here. But he created it mature. Okay, along with that, people who hold the six-day creation would say, in the period of Noah's flood, there was some crazy stuff going on that we don't really understand. I mean, it was worldwide global cataclysm. And that affected things dramatically in a condensed period of time more than we can possibly even imagine. So when I take my family, we go home, we go to Paladura Canyon. Should have put a picture up. We go to Paladura Canyon, you see the canyon, and you go to the visitor center and you talk to the ranger and read all the things and they say, oh, you know, there's a little stream coming through here and this stream, you know, look how little the stream is and how big the canyon is. We can figure out erosion rates and soil. Really smart guys, right? To figure out erosion rates of a stream, really sharp guys. And then they say, so we do the math, work it backwards. How long would it take to dig this thing out? Millions, billions, whatever you want to say, of years. And you say, well, that's fine. But what you're assuming is it's always been a little stream. How do you know it's always been a little stream? How do you know there wasn't something else going on? And the more geologists look at places like Powder Canyon and the Grand Canyon, the honest ones are beginning to say, if you read the, the, the newest science, we can't just say everything has always gone on orderly the way it's always gone on. There's got to be some allowance for cataclysm. What they say is catastrophism, that there had to be some sort of catastrophe that caused some of these things. So some people would say six days, and they would have some some explanations along with that. The gap theory. Gap theory is the idea, if you look at Genesis 1, and you look between verse 1 and verse 2, that there's a massive gap there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Gap. And a lot of these people will put in as much time as they feel like they need to put in. Millions of years, billions of years, trillions of years, whatever you want to put in there. Then you say, the earth was without form and void, Darkness was over the face of the deep. And they say something happened between verse 1 and verse 2 to cause what God made to go crazy, to be broken, to be in need of of straightening out. That's what it means when it says void and darkness and without form. Something went wrong. Some people would put the fall of Satan in there and say that affected physical creation and it all went haywire. And so they say you can fit As many years as science tells us you need to fit, you can fit it right there in that gap. Um, So I guess if you really want to fit something in there, that's helpful. My question is, if somebody is reading Genesis 1 and they go to verse 2, 
If someone didn't tell you their theory, would you ever look at the text and pull that meaning out of it? Would you ever look at those two verses and say, hmm, I think there was a billion years in there. I don't think you would ever come to that conclusion, ever. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I just think it's a really big stretch to say we're going to squeeze a whole bunch of time in there. Because the text just, it doesn't suggest that in any way, shape, or form. Day-age theory. Each quote-unquote day, the Hebrew word is yom, Y-O-M, yom, was a really long time. An epic. Millions and millions of years was day one. And they try to fit in time for evolution to take place this way. And so they say, yeah, millions and millions of years, millions and millions of years, millions and millions of years. The whole thing took millions and millions of years. By the time Adam showed up, there was a lot of other stuff that had gone on. And they point to verses, and I think it's a weak kind of verse to point to, but they point to verses like a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, or a million, or whatever, and you fit it in there. Um, They look at in, in your Bible, look at Genesis 2.4. Genesis 2.4 says, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day, singular day, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And they say, look, throughout Hebrew literature, yom, day, doesn't always mean 24-hour period. And they say, there's an example right there in the creation story. You just read that he did it in six days. And then Genesis 2.4 uses it in a different sense and says he did it in a day. And yom is kind of a flexible word. And it can mean a period of time. That's fair. That's a fair argument. My response to that view, again, is to say, if you just read Genesis 1, would you ever come up with that if someone hadn't suggested it to you? Does that seem to be the plain meaning of the text? And some people would argue, yeah. And to me, that's, that's not super convincing. Um, but there's another theory, day-age theory. Literary theory, this was um, the only person I've ever heard say this to me and say, this is the real deal, this is what's going on, was an English professor I had at WT. And they look at the creation story, and they say, look, there's clearly a structure here. It's like a, it's like a poem, and it's poetic because these were oral people and they're passing these stories down. They need a a way to remember these things. And so you have day one, two, three, days of forming, and then you have day four, five, six, days of filling. And they all line up pretty neat. Like it's a literary framework right here. And they say, look, day one, what did God make? Let there be light. And that corresponds with day four, where he formed that and filled it into stars, moon, sun. So you have the general idea here, and then he fills it up with specifics. What did he make on day two? He made the sea below and the sky. He separated those things. And lo and behold, what did he do on day five, the parallel day? Birds and fish. Oh, look, he filled them up. It's working. And they look at day three, and they say on day three, he made land. He separated land from the ocean. And what did he do on day six? He made animals and people to live on the land and it all fits and a child can remember that and you pass the story down and you don't get confused about it and I look at that and say well okay that's great but by your very argument you could also just say God's type A personality 
He wants to do it in a certain way. This is how I want to do it. I want to do this first, and then I want to do this first. I want to do this, and then I'm going to come back and fill that up, and I'm going to fill that up. I'm going to do it exactly the way that I want to do it. I don't know that that necessarily means, even though the structure's there, I don't know that that necessarily means that you've got to drag it over a long period of time. Um, the last theory, I know one person on the earth that believes this, and it's, it's the smartest Hebrew scholar I've ever met in my life and the smartest Old Testament guy I've ever met. His name is Dr. Garrett, and uh, his idea, his theory, and he can you know, connect some of the dots he, he feels like, is to say the six days in Genesis 1 are days that Moses was on Mount Sinai and God was showing him how he made things. So the first day that Moses was on Sinai receiving this revelation, God said, this is how I made light. And he's sort of experiencing that in vision form. And then day two, this is how I separated. And day three, you get the idea. And that's his theory. And he says it really doesn't have anything to do with a tight timeline. It's more just sort of a Moses describing how God showed it to him. Um, again, let me just say this, giving you sort of a survey of what did I give you, five? There's lots of other variations on these ideas. Um, and again, this is not the kind of thing where if you fall in one camp, you look at somebody else and say, you're just a terrible Christian, or you're just so stupid. How could you be so stupid? This is the kind of thing you can talk about and debate and look at the text and try to figure it out together and use your brain to think about how you know, science can fit with some of this stuff. Um, it is important to think about and talk about. And these different views have, depending on where you fall, it's going to have impact on other doctrines that we're going to come to. Um, but right now, the core ideas are what we covered a minute ago. So why do we need to know it? Six simple thoughts. We'll wrap it up. Why do I need to know about the doctrine of creation? Number one, we were created to bring glory to God. You need to know what your purpose is for existing. Everyone wants to know that. Even the scientists that deny there is a God and believe that we evolved, they want to know purpose. They want to know meaning. They want to know origins. They want to know where we came from. And sometimes they come, with an, uh, come up with an answer and they feel like it satisfies them. Um, and sometimes the stuff that they come up with is not satisfying even to an atheist, even to a naturalist. And so, that, like I said earlier, they push that back a little bit further and say, well, maybe there's something else out there that can help explain where we came from and what our purpose is. But Genesis 1 is telling you your purpose is to bring glory to God. Look at Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Verse 1 to 6, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His host. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him you highest heavens. You waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Your purpose is to praise the Lord, to bring glory to the Lord, along with everything else that he made. Number two, 
We ought to feel all fear and humility before God. And this is what I think we miss sometimes in all our debates about age of the earth and days of creation. Sometimes we miss the point that Genesis was not written to give you proof verses to slam somebody over the head with and show them how right you are and how dumb they are. Genesis was written so that you would sit back and say, there is a God, and in his sovereignty, he made everything that exists. And it wasn't like laborious, hard work. He just spoke, and there it was. That's the problem that Job ran into at the end of the book of Job when he started getting really mouthy with God about things. And God didn't show up and answer a single question or issue that Job had brought up. He just sat Job down and said, Job, where were you when I made the earth? When I made the clouds? When I put the stars up in the sky? Where were you when I did all of that? And his point was pretty obvious, and Job got it pretty quick. You need to be a little more respectful and fearful, and you need to tremble a little bit more when you come before me because you're sort of losing the distinction between creature and creator here. And so when you think about these things, it ought to cause you to have awe and fear and humility. Look at Psalm 33. We'll read that real quick. Psalm 33. Six to nine. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All fear and humility. Number three, your continued existence is a result of God sustaining his creation. So one alternative worldview to biblical Christianity would be deism. And deism says, look, there is a God, but He just made everything and it's like a watch and he wound it up and then he's just letting it run and he's back here and he really has nothing to do with his creation once he's made it. He's sort of hands off. And the biblical text says that is absolutely not the case. He is hands on, involved, actively sustaining everything that he made. Um, Let's look at Colossians and Hebrews. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, we're talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There's your purpose again. You were created for Jesus. And he is before all things. And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. You say, what does it mean to hold together? Well, 
Look over at Hebrews chapter 1. It gives you a little bit of a different take on it, but it's the same idea. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He's the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he make it by the word of his power, but he continues to uphold it and sustain it by the word of his power. Number four, the God who created all things is the same God who helps his people. And I realize that sounds like a five-year-old lesson that we would teach down the hall, but I just think sometimes we forget it. And Psalm 121 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. The one who helps his people is the one who is powerful enough to speak stars and galaxies and the universe into existence. It's powerful to take mud to form it into a man and to breathe life into it. That's the one who helps us. Number five, we should respect creation but not worship it. We do have a stewardship over the world, over the earth. It means we should not disregard it. it means Christians should care about pollution. It means Christians should care about animal cruelty. It means Christians should care about all sorts of things, to be good stewards of what God's given us dominion over. But it also means we don't worship the creation. We don't get this hierarchy that God built flipped, right? You can't ever look at the starving puppy commercial and feel worse about that puppy than you feel about a starving orphan. You can't get that flipped. When you get it flipped, you've missed it. And I'm not telling you the starving puppy is not important. I'm just telling you it is not as important as the starving orphan. It's not. And you can't get that flipped upside down. Last idea. The doctrine of creation ought to cause us to anticipate the new creation. I'm not going to say much about this because we're going to talk about it one night specifically in a few weeks. It's going to be one of the the neatest lessons we, we do. I'll just say this. In the beginning, God made a world that was physical and spiritual, and there was a unity there, and he said that is very good. And what the Bible says, sometimes we just forget to read the very end of the Bible. We just leave off the last two chapters, and we think, you know, someday I'm going to be in heaven, and we'll just won't have these bodies, won't have to worry about physical stuff anymore. It's just going to be spirits on the cloud with the harp and the robe, and it's going to be great. And the Bible says in the end, there's going to be a new world, a restored, perfect, new creation, and you're going to live in it. And there's going to be physical things, T-bone steaks, we're going to have them, and baseball, we're going to play it, and working in your garden, you're going to get to do it, and building things, and and dreaming up ideas and engineering and all the things that we love is going to be there. It's going to be part of it. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I, read, I read one quote about new creation this week, and I really liked it. It said, only God can write a story that starts out perfect and ends better. And that's what we're going to talk about in a few weeks. So we'll end with this. Let me just mention a few books. 
Um, a couple of these um, systematic theology books I've mentioned a couple of times, so I'm not going to um, mention them to you again. For those of you who like to think, and some of you guys, I know you like to think. You're smart people. Um, let me just mention a couple of books. One is a book called Not a Chance by R.C. Sproul. Uh, subtitle is The Myth of Chance in Modern Science and Cosmology. And I read this book for the first time when I was a senior in high school and didn't understand half of it, but read it anyways and plowed through it. Uh, and it was very helpful for me as a senior taking physics in high school from someone who did not absolutely, certainly did not believe in God. Uh, and as a senior in high school, that was sort of intimidating to me because they were talking about things that I didn't really know how to respond to. Um, and this is a great book just saying if your worldview is based on chance, coincidence, it just seemed to happen, that's the most ridiculous thing you could ever base a worldview on. And it's a really great book. Um, this is a book called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. And a guy named Joe Rigney wrote it. And I really like this book because he, he just says up front, I'm um, looking at some of the pictures, he says, you know what, I know I'm supposed to love God, but I also really love basketball and um, going to the mountains and eating a donut and playing chess and art and music and my three-year-old daughter. And he says, I know I'm supposed to love God, but sometimes I just feel like I love all those other things maybe as much as or more than and am I supposed to feel guilty about that, or is that okay, or is that a good thing? And it's a really good discussion about that. Um, so there's a book, thinking about some of the things that God has made for us to enjoy, ultimately that should glorify him. And then uh, one more book I'll mention. Um, I talked to you about the idea of the six-day creation view that says... Um, you have to allow for catastrophism in the flood and on other events that can help explain why the world looks the way that it does. And there's a book called Footprints in the Ash, John Morris and Stephen Austin. And it's a story of Mount St. Helens. You remember Mount St. Helens that blew up? And it's these guys that they go to Mount St. Helens right after it happens, and they find numerous things that happened in a matter of days. I mean, instantly when there's this massive catastrophe, that up until that point, scientists, really smart scientists, said, that takes millions of years to happen. That can't happen in a thousand years. That can't happen in a hundred thousand years. And these guys said, well, we just went and saw it. It happened in two days. So you're right. It can't happen without millions of years if there's no catastrophe. But if you allow for some sort of catastrophe, uh, things can can be explained. So it's a helpful book, and I enjoyed reading it. You might enjoy it too. So there you go. That's the doctrine of creation.